Whether it's running, hiking, biking, golfing, or even working, Curex insoles can help your patients live healthy and active lifestyles. Using the latest medical and biomechanics research, Curex insoles are engineered for unequaled comfort, performance, and injury prevention. With its patented dynamic arch technology that enables the ideal ratio of flexibility and rigidity, Curex insoles properly support the foot and its natural movement for ideal knee and hip alignment. And because no two patients are alike, Curex offers a full line of highly customised insoles available in high, medium and low arch profiles. Learn more about the science behind Curex and sign up for a free sample at medical.curex.us. That's medical.currex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. There's plenty to think about when you're trying to diagnose and then manage shoulder instability. For atraumatic instability, sometimes simply teasing out exactly what's going on can frustrate clinicians and patients alike. And what about after shoulder dislocation? Surgery? No surgery? What is best practice? Well, today we're getting some expert advice from someone who has spent her clinical and research career trying to improve how we manage musculoskeletal shoulder disorders and support patients and athletes to reach their performance goals. Dr. Amy Seitz is an Associate Professor in the Physical Therapy and Human Movement Sciences Department at Northwestern University. She's also co-leading the Anterior Shoulder Instability Clinical Practice Guidelines for the American Academy of Orthopaedic Physical Therapy. Do keep an eye out for that CPG that lands in 2023. Towards the end of today's episode, Amy mentions some shoulder function and performance tests, and you can find lots more information about these tests, including 22 high-quality exercise videos in the 2022 Burn Consensus on Shoulder Injury Prevention, Rehabilitation, and Return to Sport, which is available for free on the JOSPT website. We'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, here's the episode. Dr. Amy Seitz, thanks for joining me today on JOSPT Insights. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, and it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, and we're talking about diagnosing and managing shoulder instability. You're bringing all that wonderful clinical and research expertise of yours, Amy, so we are absolutely in for a a terrific clinically relevant chat. Let's start with what are your clinical pearls for folks who are trying to tease out that clinical picture and potentially diagnose shoulder instability? The diagnosis of instability when it comes to a dislocation, that's very easy and I think clear cut. So there's really no controversy around that. It's the other individuals that have some form of instability that is the challenge. And I think the literature on this is very mixed. There's a lot of classification systems that exist, more than a dozen to my knowledge that exist. And You know, if you look at the prevalence of those disorders defined by the FEDS, the FEDS stands for the frequency, etiology, direction, and severity. They're really describing traumatic dislocations. They're missing a whole host of those that have a motor patterning or atraumatic 
kind of etiology. So I think from that perspective, it's a challenge. We did a survey where we asked providers in sports medicine from orthopedic physicians to primary care sports physicians to PM&R docs, athletic trainers and PTs. And we had them rank different findings from a subjective and an objective perspective on what they value and what they use to rule in instability, specifically atraumatic. And we were trying to get at the point of multidirectional. The interesting part, what the only difference with regards to a finding of a positive sulcus sign. So we posed a scenario where the patient's, you know, patient scenario was like a 25-year-old that had no history of trauma, six-month history of an insidious onset of shoulder pain related to the activity of playing. And then we gave a scenario of objective findings, positive impingement signs, negative labral signs, positive painful arc, gave three examination findings that may be related to instability. One will be a positive apprehension. There will be a positive relocation test. And then in scenario one, we had a negative sulcus and a positive sulcus. The majority of individuals said with a negative sulcus and those findings that they would call this impingement or secondary impingement. When you add the sulcus sign, which is not diagnostic, we know this, it's just a laxity test. Now everyone's saying it's instability. So I think, you know, there's, there's challenges. If you're an athlete, you know, you're a parent of somebody who has instability and you hear one provider saying one thing and the other provider calling it something else, you know, the confidence level that you may have is not great. How would we classify someone with multidirectional instability. So really, this is opinion. That's, that's where we are at this point. But it would have to be somebody that has pain, ideally, symptoms of instability in more than one direction. Typically, these people are lax. Typically, these people have a biting score of greater than a five out of nine. And you'd like it to be more of a symptom of looseness or instability rather than pain. And it sounds like it's a lot of listening carefully to what the patient's telling you about the symptoms, how they're feeling, what's going on when they're trying to play sport or, you know, when they're doing their physical activity, rather than saying there's the one clinical test that I do that's going to tell me that this is instability or it's not instability. It's a bit of a pro- of, of a jigsaw puzzle, I guess. Yes, that was the one commonality among all the providers in that survey where the subjective complaint of looseness or wants to pop out was the primary reason or primary symptom of why you might label someone with instability. I like that you also make the distinction between the person who can tell you my shoulder dislocated, it happened, I remember it exactly what I was doing and someone relocated it for me. That's easy. But as you say, it's the atraumatic ones that we're talking about here that's the difficult thing to diagnose. Agreed. Let's talk about direction of instability because there are different, instability has lots of different elements to it. Does it even matter? Do we care about or should we care about the direction of instability? Those are traumatic injuries where you have a dislocation. Certainly, I think the direction matters and it may impact your rehabilitation. But when it comes to a traumatic instability, Direction doesn't matter. We don't really know. 
what I can say, you know, some of the evidence is really suggesting that it doesn't. The Derby study was a perfect example of that, where they had 50 patients with instability of multiple. They eliminated those that had a traumatic onset of, of uh, instability, but then we're left with polar like groups two and three. So the motor patterning and a, a traumatic instability. And, you know, the anterior group did just as well as the posterior group with a good conservative management approach that included very simple kind of progressions, proprioception and strength. Right. And I think that's really nice, Amy, because it gives us a kind of framework to think broadly about how do I structure a rehab program? What are the goals and the things that we as a as a patient and therapist alliance are trying to achieve rather than stressing about, oh, is it posterior? Is it anterior? Is it multidirectional? How am I going to figure it out? Does it, you know, how that how is that going to influence the decisions that I make in clinical practice and the support that I provide to the to the athlete or to the patient? Yeah, I think with regards to potentially traumatic situation, you know, traumatic dislocation, you know, there's not a lot of evidence and, you know, it's anecdotal experience treating patients with posterior dislocations just because the population doesn't happen as frequently, 5% dislocation. So you start to say, all right, well, are these patients different than those who have an anterior dislocation? Are there differences in the way that the muscles perform, potentially from a stabilizing perspective? the lines of action of the primary movers, like the lats, the pecs, how are those impacted by potentially the position that your arm is in? And so we looked at a very simple study where we're just looking at pure abduction versus abduction and external rotation, kind of the position you would think somebody with an anterior instability might have pain that's provoked. We noticed that from a standpoint of being able to stabilize against external perturbation, that you're better with contraction and you're better able to stabilize with contraction, even even as small as 10%, you have quite a jump in your ability to stabilize the joint. But in that abduction and externally rotated position, that's decreased. Why is that stiffness, your ability to resist external perturbations decreased in that position. And it has to be related to the lines of action. Clinically, we've always thought that, but I think, you know, having some studies to help support that. Now, what's the next step? The next step might be, okay, well, what could we do and what should we be training from a muscle perspective? And I think we had a very, I know I, as a novice clinician, had a very narrow perspective of focusing only on the cuff and primarily strengthening. And then I started working into a little bit more proprioception. Now there's a whole host of things that we start to think about. And, you know, maybe for anterior instability that's traumatic, we need to start thinking about ways that you can maximize the position that might be better and start in a position that's not in that end range. What could we do for patients with posterior instability? That's, that's not well established. I personally think we can do a bit more from a rehab perspective of somebody with posterior instability, because we have the scapula that can protract and create a bony buttress behind or for posterior forces to at the glenohumeral joint. So I think sometimes we can get away with non-operative intervention much easier in those posterior, posterior instability than we can for those who have anterior instability. You mentioned non-operative treatment there. Before we get into talking about rehabilitation programs and sort of the bread and butter for us as rehabilitation clinicians, let's talk a little bit about surgery. 
When, if ever, is it time to consider a surgical opinion for managing shoulder instability, Amy? The evidence is clear from several randomized trials now that show rehab versus surgery for primarily males, mean ages around in the 20s that were in high demand activity. The majority of these patients that were, you know, in these studies were in the military, that surgery is definitely reduces the risk for recurrence in those that have a traumatic anterior dislocation. So we have evidence for traumatic anterior dislocation in those patient populations. Now, one thing we have in the 90s and in the early 2000s was a lot, lot different, I think, than it, than it is now from a non-operative perspective. So if you look at the rehabilitation programs from those studies, the non-operative group were treated similar to the operative group. So they were placed in a sling for the same duration of time and then allowed to start the gradual range of motion, then start strengthening. And we know treating patients following a dislocation now, that's not what we want to do. We want to try to get them out of the sling as soon as they feel comfortable and evidence is supporting that that there's no harm in that approach. With the evidence the way that it is, level one evidence with randomized trials showing that there's a, a greater chance or greater risk of a recurrent event following a dislocation. But that's a conversation that you're having with every with every patient that has had that has a, a dislocation. I think from a standpoint of atraumatic instability, certainly there's not a lot of evidence that surgery is helpful. And I think from that perspective, there's agreement across the board, regardless of the provider. So that's a perfect segue into talking about putting a rehabilitation program together, Amy. So what are your top tips for clinicians listening to us today who are thinking about how to approach putting a rehabilitation program together for someone who's, who has shoulder instability? We always think about rehabilitation with regards to treating the person that's in front of us, right? And every person with instability, it's not the pathoanatomic diagnosis necessarily. It's not the, what is written on the piece of paper, but how they present. So, you know, the model that's been used in a lot of the clinical practice guidelines is the irritability model. So somebody with really high levels of resting pain, high disability, those patients, regardless of their diagnosis, we're going to treat them with interventions that match that irritability level. So if their primary presentation is high pain, we might do things from a pain perspective, whether that be manual therapy, whether that be working on positioning, whether that be integrating modalities. They may present with maybe lower irritability levels. Maybe it's it's someone that just started having some instability symptoms, or they only have instability symptoms after they perform at a high level. That person is a lot different in how you might manage them. So the first thing I would suggest is that we're always treating the patient that's in front of us. We're going to evaluate their impairments. Their impairments may differ for patients with instability crossing the gamut from localized strength, pain, scapular strength, core stability, the kinetic chain. So I think making sure that we're evaluating and treating more than just the cuff, we don't have to start necessarily with just the scapula. We had, no, we had a, we had, there was a time when 
that was very favored. But you really can't isolate scapula from rotator cuff muscles. And can you really isolate that from the rest of the kinetic chain? It really depends on what you do. So I think number two might be focusing on the whole addressing kinetic chain issues and rotator cuff strength. And then lastly, starting to integrate things with regards to addressing fear, kinesiophobia, trying to maybe integrate movement into positions where they had a traumatic event happen where they dislocated their shoulder. We historically haven't done a great job at potentially addressing that. We know now that there are cortical changes that occur. They're evoked. We have emotional changes that are provoked in patients who've had instability when they see videos of them, of somebody else doing a motion where their arm is, let's say, in abducted and externally rotated position. So if those emotional responses noted in the brain are evoked just with a video of watching someone else do this, you can imagine how the person might feel from an anxiety perspective. How to address them, I think, is not well developed. So graded exposure, maybe using some imagery where you're using a mirror to try to show them doing it, performing a task that may be provoking pain on their involved side, but with their uninvolved side, it looks perfect, but the mirror might help them gain confidence and retrain some of these cortical changes. Three tips, it's treating the patient in front of you, particularly with regards to irritability and impairments, recognizing that you had addressed the entire chain and integrating potentially things that may uh, help us address the fear, anxiety, and potential cortical changes that are more centrally driven in these patients. That's great, Amy. Let me pick up on a couple of those issues. So first about irritability, how much irritability is okay? How do I sort of, how do I dose that? Is it a case where you don't want somebody to have pain at all? So you're working at a fairly low level potentially to begin with, or is it okay for someone to feel some, some irritability or some pain while they're doing the rehab? How do you kind of manage that you know, you'll get a lot of different answers from clinicians on this. I tend to use maybe the soreness rules where we think about, yeah, you can have some pain as long as we're making progress in a direction where we'd like to go over the weeks. I'd like to see, you know, if you have an increase in your pain that is a two or three on a zero to 10 scale, which is always still so very subjective, you have the ability that for that to come down between your bouts of whatever you're doing. So making sure that, you know, maybe you have a high performance day and then you have maybe a more lower performance or kinetic change kind of training day so that you allow the irritability to abate before you provoke things again. So I, I think it's nearly impossible to treat somebody trying to be pain-free all the time. The soreness rules have been a just general guide that I've used where if it increases by more than two or three points that I might rest an additional day or instead of rest, we do active rest and treating, you know, maybe the rest of the kinetic chain and then allow that to come back down. And then if it is something that they can tolerate and each time the pain is tends to be reducing, then I feel like we're on a good track. There's some great clinical tips. Now, my next question is about this idea of integrating a rehabilitation program. So you and I, I think, were both of that generation where it was like you do the rotator cuff exercise in 
neutral position, elbow by the side, and then we move on to the next thing. I think the younger clinicians listening to us today will have already got past that and they're much more adept at building in some strength and conditioning training principles and moving through more complex ranges of motion. How do you integrate things like rotator cuff strength for someone for whom you think that's appropriate or perhaps it's not necessarily strength, it's more about activation or motor programming or however we want to frame that, with proprioception, with the strength of other prime mover muscle groups, the pecs, the lats, the biceps, how do you sort of go about figuring out where to pitch that level? It's always a challenge. Trying to work along a progression is always very helpful. There's return to some activity then there's return to like the sport and then there's return to like performance. Okay. And I'm, I'm stealing lingo from burn consensus statement, but I think that's always been a great approach and that people can go back to activity. So I start to think, what do they need from a strengthening perspective? What positions do they need to be in from a strengthening perspective? Is it a unilateral stance because they throw is it alignment that's maybe in a contact sport? You know, so I try to address what tasks they need to do and the strengthening that they would need to do it in. Early in a rehab phase, I might always do co-contraction with closed chain kinetic activities, but as person progresses to the task that, that they want to get back to, you might find that you need to do more open chain because that's their particular task analyzing what their tasks are that they need to do, making sure that they have the entire kinetic chain in a good position to do it. And then as they go into their sport and start returning to sport activity, you see if there's anything that's breaking down. And so we have obvious impairments that we assess in the clinic. From a standpoint of Addressing those impairments, it's important. You know, we look at ratios, but what is a ratio when we think about strength for internal and external rotation if both of them are decreased? So we try to use the contralateral side or try to use normative values. Preseason testing certainly would help with that. Pre injury testing would help with that, but trying to get them back to a point where at least the impairments are addressed from a cuff perspective, from a scapular perspective larger lever arm perspective, and then faster movements, being able to handle things where they're going through sport-specific training and using some of our closed kinetic chain tests, our throwing tests, our endurance tests that for physical performance to kind of help us target what things might need to be further addressed along the continuum of that uh, return to performance goal. The continuum, I think, liberates us to think about what are the demands of the sport right from the get-go, rather than separating out a rehabilitation program and saying, okay, we're going to focus on impairments and we're going to get you do, doing external rotation in that neutral position with your elbow by your side for you know three weeks and then you move on. It's more about liberating us as clinicians to think about right from the the first time we see that injured athlete, what does what does she need to do to get back to her throwing sport or her swimming or whatever it is? So I love that idea. And then I think that that sort of links in nicely with 
Coming back to the discussion about kinesiophobia or anxiety about re-injury, particularly for athletes with instability, I think it can be a big challenge because that apprehension and that feeling of, is this going to dislocate when I go back to my throwing sport or my whatever my overhead sport or my contact sport is, is a big challenge to overcome for some people. So Amy, what are your tips for talking with athletes about that? Number one, identifying that as a, as an impairment. Right. It's a it's an impairment, but it's, you know, a psychological impairment that's limiting their ability to return to their sport. First, finding great ways to assess it. I think, you know, there are some new tools that are self-reported outcome tools that allow us to do this injury psychology readiness kind of scales, shoulder instability, return to sport injury scales. I think those are newer to clinicians. Those are great tools that, you know, you could start with. I think. We've intuitively know this when they show you apprehension or they tell you during the movements that is that is painful. And that tends to be maybe more in the acute phase of rehabilitation. There was a great program helpful for patients with traumatic instability called the Sinex program. And it was an excellent, excellent program that really gave some really clear examples of how you might work on controlled movements. And showing the patient that they can work into an abducted, externally rotated position if they have anterior instability. And so you start to say, okay, let's move controlled, supine, where things are well supported, and maybe prop the elbow into a position where it's not necessarily at in the coronal plane. And then start having them move where they feel comfortable in internal and external rotation. Once you can restore motion actively into 90 degrees, then I might start working into resistance. Same thing, supine. Then I might start working into a more standing position. Then I might do the same motions, now having them do cognitive loading tasks as they do their strengthening. Then I might start progressing in a way where now we're going to put that arm in a position and you resist external perturbations and slowly working into that position where they feel at risk. Co-contraction is a great way to make patients, I think, feel better about the activity. So having a ball maybe against the wall and then pushing into the wall, co-contracting is a nice way. I think sometimes patients can gain some confidence I think the challenge for us as clinicians is sometimes we feel like, well, hang on, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not sure that I'm the right person to deal with anxiety or concerns about re-injury. But I think, in fact, what you're really talking about there is a very powerful way to use what you're doing in rehabilitation, the body, to reinforce that for the athlete that, yes, my body can handle this and I can cope with the demands and my body is strong and I've done enough to feel ready to get back to sport. And I think it's a really lovely illustration of how we combine the physical and the mental readiness to return to sport, Amy. So thanks for for laying that out for us. And I think that's the perfect way for us to finish our chat today. A beautiful combination of clinical skills and pearls and research expertise. Dr. Amy Seitz, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on JOSPT Insights. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. 
For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.